0: We'll be looking at Ruth again, the book of Ruth. So please turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter two, that's page two sixty-one, if you're using the few Bibles. <coughs> we looked at the book of Ruth twice in two sermons this past July. Uh, we had an introduction and a consideration. Of chapter one. <coughs> and uh, There we saw Elimelech of Bethlehem take his wife, Naomi, and his two sons to the country of Moab to escape a famine in Bethlehem. There Elimelech died, and his two sons, who had married Moabite wives, also died. Naomi, hearing that the famine was over, returned to Bethlehem, grief-stricken, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who had become deeply committed to Naomi. And to Naomi's God, the God of Israel. And that's where we, uh, that's where we got to at the end of chapter 1. <clears throat> so let's now read chapter 2. Naomi and Ruth are already now in Bethlehem. Let's hear God's word. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of the Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young man not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels, and drink from what the young man have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take take notice of me, that I am a foreigner? Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my lord, for you have comforted me, and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here, and eat the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her. She ate and was satisfied and kept some back. When she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. We'll end our reading there. Naomi has returned from Moab, returned to her land and her people, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She has returned grieving deeply, bereft of her husband and both of her sons, a widow with virtually nothing. And since she's living in the time of the judges when As we're told, every man did what was right in his own eyes. She can reasonably be concerned as she returns that whatever property her family had may have been taken by others while she has been gone. Do not call me Naomi, she says to the woman. The name means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She's in great need and very vulnerable. But as we noted previously, the low point of Naomi's story has passed. The famine is over. The Lord has visited his people by giving them bread, we're told in, in chapter 1. And Naomi has come home to Bethlehem, house of bread. The name is not insignificant. And she has arrived at the start of the barley harvest, the first harvest after the winter takes place in April. Perhaps, we don't know for sure, the first good harvest after the year, long years of famine. God is caring for Naomi, and in his overarching plan, she has arrived at the right time. But if Naomi and Ruth are to survive and escape grinding poverty, they will need help. They will need a provider, protector. You might even say a deliverer. God will provide those needs, as we'll see. For as the Scriptures tell us repeatedly, God cares for the fatherless and the widow. The remainder of the book of Ruth shows him doing just that. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, the author of the Scriptures, introduces us to Boaz, The one who will ultimately be the deliverer. And so today we'll be looking at Boaz. We'll look at who he is and how he acts when he meets Ruth. This sermon will have four parts. First of all, we see Boaz arrives and asks some questions. Secondly, Boaz provides and protects. Third, we ask the question, why does Boaz care about Ruth's situation? Fourthly, Boaz as a type of Christ. So Boaz arrives and asks some questions. Boaz provides and protects. Why do, does Boaz care, we ask the question, about Ruth's situation? And finally, Boaz' type of Christ, and I'll have some concluding thoughts. So Boaz arrives and asks some questions. Boaz is the linchpin of the story of Ruth. The narrator knows this and so makes sure that he is suitably introduced. In fact, the narrator describes Boaz for several verses before he even appears on the scene. Boaz is mentioned in the opening words of verse 1 as a relative of Naomi's husband. And that really doesn't tell us much. But the narrator tells us the same thing again later in the same sentence of the family of Elimelech, saying the same thing over again. Twice in a sentence, he's described as a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. So we may suspect that the the narrator is starting to draw attention to someone of importance. But at this point, what's more significant is how Boaz is described in a particular phrase in the middle of verse 1. In the Q Bibles, which is New King James Version, the phrase is translated a man of great wealth. And the New American Standard translates it the same way. But surprisingly, the other two main English translations, the NIV and the ESV, render it rather differently. New King James and NASB, a man of great wealth. NIV, a man of standing. ESV, a worthy man. These are rather different re- renderings and we might ask why the, the translators... <coughs> excuse me. We might, we might ask why. Uh, I have a don't have Hebrew background so I have to go with what the lexicons and commentators say I don't usually like to spend much time on a single phrase but as it turns out this phrase describing Boaz turns out to be important for understanding him and his key role in the story so I beg your forbearance as we seek to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying about Boaz now in this phrase there are two words In the original language one is quite straightforward and means mighty the other word kail is a term that can be translated several ways but at root signifies physical strength or force most often the two words appear together in the old testament in a military context in that context they're nearly always translated as a mighty man of valor the phrase is very common Gideon perhaps the greatest of the judges is described in Judges 6 as a mighty man of valor, as is Jephthah in chapter 11. Exactly the same words are used here to describe boys, But the context is not military. And outside of a military context, the term kail can mean strength of character. That is, a person who is perhaps of noble character, or somewhat differently, a person who can get things done. The term can also describe someone who has a strong social position, a person of standing, and influence in the community. You can see that there's somewhat of a range of meanings, all related in some way to the root meaning of strength. The word kail can also mean wealthy, and often does. In Old Testament times, rightly or wrongly, wealth was seen as an indication of God's particular favor towards that person. And persons of wealth, therefore, tended to have strong social position and influence. And interestingly, this same word, chayil is the one that is used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31.10. That woman of excellence who can do everything. In Hebrew, she's literally a woman of strength. So, how are we to understand what God is t- conveying to us about Boaz here, since he's so important in this story? Boaz is certainly not being described as a great fighter. But if we look at how he acts in chapter 2 and throughout the remainder of the book, we'll see that all of the other senses that we've mentioned do seem to describe him. He is noble in character. He has high standing in the community. He has great ability to get things done. And he is indeed wealthy. It appears then that Boaz, like the woman of Proverbs 31, is actually all of these things. And so it seems all of the English translations are correct as far as they go. But none of them seems to encompass the full meaning. The ESV may come the closest when it describes Boaz as a man of worth. But even that doesn't do him full justice. Perhaps the best we can do is to say that he is truly a man of excellence. A most excellent person in every way. Overall, that's what the narrator seems to be conveying. So, Again, we anticipate great things from this man as the story unfolds. So this is the man, the noble person, the man of wealth, the man of standing in the community, the man of influence, in whose field Ruth, the foreigner, the poor widow, the person who has no influence or standing. The Moabite comes to glee. See the contrast that the narrator draws as he sets the scene. Boaz has everything. Ruth has nothing. Yet both, both possess Cail in the sense of excellence of character. We already saw that about Ruth in chapter 1. And we'll see it going forward in Boaz. And God has planned that Boaz and Ruth will meet. Note how he set it up. The narrator tells us in verse 3 that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz it wasn't intentional on her her part she just happened to go there God sovereignly brought her there and then the narrator tells us again at the end of verse 3 now for the third time that Boaz is from the family of Elimelech. so there's a lot of build up about Boaz in these first three verses and Boaz actually still has not appeared but finally in verse 4 he appears and the narrator makes sure we're say, paying attention. Now, behold, says the narrator. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Here he is. And so we pay close attention. We want to see what this man is like. And the first thing that we see is a beautiful interaction between Boaz and the reapers, his servants, when he comes into the field. He greets them personally which itself is noteworthy. In those times, a man of social standing might not even speak to lowly field workers. But Boaz does. And what does he say? He says, may Yahweh be with you. Now those aren't empty words. We've noted previously that the people of the book of Ruth are people who take God's name very seriously. They don't use his name casually. And so when Boaz says, may Yahweh be with you, He really means it. He wants the very best for his servants. The presence of God with them. And they respond with, May Yahweh bless you. Quite likely, this is the way they greeted each other every every day. But that doesn't take away the beauty or sincerity of the interaction. Mutual appreciation between master and servants. Each wishing God's goodness for the other. This is life in a faithful covenant community. A community in which hearts have been transformed by grace. We'll pick this up again later. So this is how Boaz is introduced. And now we see him interact with Ruth. In particular, we see, secondly, how Boaz provides and protects. Boaz immediately notices a woman leaning in the field whom he doesn't recognize. We know from later in the chapter that he had been informed about her coming to Bethlehem with Naomi. But he hadn't actually met Ruth. And so he asks the servant in charge who she is. Actually he asks whose young woman she is. In other words, who's responsible for her care? Boaz's inquiry may may seem odd to 21st century ears. But he has a good reason for his question. And we'll see that in a minute. The servant in charge says who she is. The young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. That's twice in the same verse and three times in the first six verses that we've been reminded that Ruth is a Moabite. The servant goes on to explain that she has asked permission to glean and says that she's been gleaning pretty steadily since the beginning of the working day. Boaz then speaks to Ruth First in verses 8 through 13 and then again later at mealtime in verse 14. And notice how he addresses her. He knows that she isn't expecting him to say anything to her. She's a poor woman, a gleaner, a foreigner. And so he's very careful and very intentional, kindly and gently beginning with a question. You will listen, my daughter, will you not? gets her attention. And then, astonishingly, he calls her, my daughter. Now, this is amazing. This woman whom he's speaking to is a Moabite, a foreigner from a neighboring country which had a long and unpleasant history of treating Israel badly. Israelites and Moabites didn't like each other very much. On top of this, Boaz has never met this woman before. And he addresses her as, my daughter. It's highly unusual, but it's a truly beautiful fulfillment of Leviticus 19.34, which was read earlier. God says, the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. We see now how practically Boaz provides for Ruth and seeks to protect her. Her, her need and Naomi's is pretty basic. Food. That's why Ruth is gleaning. Boaz, Boaz understands that and does all he can to help her. Right away in verse eight he says, Glean in my field, don't go anywhere else. And we find out later from verses twenty one to twenty three that he told her to keep gleaning in the field until the harvest was finished. That is, till the second harvest, the wheat harvest, was finished which would have been two months later, in June. Barley harvest in April, wheat, wheat harvest in June. He also tells her, in verse 9, that if she gets thirsty, she should drink from the vessels that are there for the reapers. And when mealtime comes, he tells her to come and sit with the reapers, and eat with them, and he passes food to her. Then he even tells the readers to let grain fall purposefully for her. This is quite amazing kindness. Far beyond what the law required. Boaz is doing all he can to help provide. He also does all he can to provide physical protection for Ruth, reflecting the times that they were living in the period of the judges, that crazy, wild time in Israel when we're told in the Bible that there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of lawlessness. And in such times, the strong can take advantage of the weak. Women in general would have been vulnerable, but Ruth even more so, because she was a foreigner who did not have the protection that Israelite women had through being part of a local family with male relatives. That's why Boaz's initial question in verse 5 was framed the way it was. Whose young woman is this? In other words, who's looking after her? And so he says to her in verse 8, Don't go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young woman. And then in the next verse, Have I not commanded the young man not to touch you? Naomi later echoed Boaz's, Boaz's advice in verse 22. She said, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, and that people do not meet you in any other field. So we see Boaz acting as both provider protect her. Boaz is paying unusual attention to the to this woman's needs. And we may legitimately ask why does Boaz care about Ruth's situation? Why does he care? And Ruth has been wondering about that too. Verse 10 it says, she fell on her face, bowed to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? The basic reason, basic reason for Boaz's kindness is that the law of God required it. We read earlier Moses' summary of the statement of the essence of the law in Deuteronomy 10. Tim read this to us earlier. Note verses 18 and 19 of Deuteronomy 10. Moses says, He, God, administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger. Giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God is addressing here the situation of foreigners living among among the Israelites, which is exactly Ruth's situation. Notice in particular that God says that he loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing, and then immediately says to Israel, You therefore should love the stranger. The people of God are a chief means by which God provides for the stranger who is among them. And so Boaz, who loved God and his law, did what he did basically because God, whom he served, directed it. This is surely the basic reason why Boaz did what he did. But what Boaz did for Ruth in this chapter, as we have noted, went beyond the law. His additional reasons are set out in verses 11 and 12. This is his response to Ruth's humble question in verse 10. Here in these two verses, we see what is motivating Boaz in detail. I think he's quite insightful. What he says is, I think, quite lovely. So what has moved Boaz to help Ruth so much? We note three things in verses 11 and 12. First, that he's very impressed by Ruth's total dedication to Naomi. He says it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Ruth's commitment to Naomi in staying with and supporting her goes beyond what would be expected from the widow of a deceased son. Boaz knows, notes this. Then secondly, Boaz continues "And how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. By committing her life to Naomi, Ruth both physically and emotionally left all that was near and dear to her. Boaz recognizes how great her sacrifice was. Moving from one country to another was not common. When it did happen, it was usually because of a calamity, such as war or a famine. And for as long as you remained in that country, you would expect to be at least somewhat vulnerable, always in need of protection. And especially if you're a woman. The third thing that made Boaz act so generously. And the most important is the last one in verse 12. He says, the Lord repay your work. And a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz recognizes that Ruth has sought the protection she needs from Yahweh. Here, I believe, is the heart of the chapter. Boaz understands at the deepest level why Ruth has done what she has done. Why she has been willing to give up so much and live under hardship and put herself at such risk. Boaz recognizes that Ruth has done this because she has come to know the living God, Yahweh, and to put all of her trust in him. God has given Ruth a heart that loves him and that loves her neighbor as herself. Out of that new heart, Ruth has dedicated her life to loving Naomi and the God of Naomi. That's why Ruth has done what she's done and Boaz understands that. The concept of God hiding a trusting believer in order to protect him or him or her is found in many places in the Bible. But the particularly expressive phrase that Boaz uses about taking refuge under God's wings is found only here in verse 12 and in six of the Psalms, nowhere else in the Bible. The phrase is found in Psalms 17, 36, 57, 61, 63, 91. Five of these are titled Psalms of David and and the sixth one is without title. And the the Psalms all speak in beautiful language about the trusting believer receiving God's care. For example, in Psalm 17, David prays, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me from my deadly enemies. In Psalm 36, David exclaims, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore, the children of men Put their trust under your wings. Again, this exact phrase is found only in these words of Boaz, and in the words of those six songs, nowhere else. We might wonder if this delightful phrase came to David from his great-grandfather Boaz through his family, believing Israelites who themselves trusted in the Lord God. We don't know, of course, but the similarity of the phrase is intriguing. The question has often been asked as to whether Boaz is kind to Ruth because he sees her as a possible wife. Although he and Ruth married later, I think we shouldn't assume that marriage was in his mind at this time for a couple of reasons. First, because Boaz took no subsequent action. It was Ruth who actually initiated the marriage process in chapter 3. His slowness to act in regard to marriage is significant because he's described by Naomi in chapter 3 as a man who acts swiftly and decisively. Second reason for not assuming that marriage was in Boaz's mind is that in general, reading unexpressed motivations is risky. God can see a person's heart. We can see only what the person expresses outwardly. We can say for sure That Boaz was motivated by love for God. Love for a neighbor in need. And by a high regard for this particular neighbor. It's not impossible that Boaz had marriage in mind at this time. But we can't know. fourth Fourth part about Boaz as a type of Christ. Boaz as a type of Christ. From Genesis to Revelation the Holy Spirit unfolds God's great plan of redemption centered on Jesus Christ. In various ways, the Old Testament gave information ahead of time about the person and work of the Messiah to come. Some Old Testament passages pointed forward to Christ by describing the particular calling of the Messiah as caring for, helping, and delivering the needy. Boaz was one such person, as we'll see. Jesus, Messiah, clearly understood these passages as pointing forward to himself. Perhaps the most striking example of this is in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, cites Isaiah 61 as pointing to himself. If If you would, please look with me at Luke chapter 4. I'll read verses 16 to 21. Luke chapter 4 verses 16 to 21. It's at page 1008 in your pew Bible. This is right at the start of Jesus' public ministry. Look forward, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Now as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah And when he had opened the book he found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is right at the start of Jesus' ministry. And Luke's description continues in the next verse Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, says Jesus, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus announces publicly here that he is the Messiah, prefigured in Isaiah 61, and takes that scripture as a statement of his messianic calling. And notice how that passage defines the particular calling of the Messiah as helping and delivering those who cannot help themselves. The poor, the broken hearted, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. This is the calling of the Messiah. I think it's clear that Boaz was one who prefigured Jesus. And being a man of excellent character and considerable power, who went out of his way to provide for and protect the needy and the vulnerable. In this, Boaz is a type of Christ whose life pointed forward to the Messiah to come. Psalm 72 is also clearly messianic. It's titled a Psalm of Solomon. But King Solomon, powerful as he was, could only prefigure Jesus. In that psalm, God says, for he will deliver the needy when he cries. The poor also And him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy. And save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. We don't look to Boaz or Solomon. Or for that matter Moses or David. As our deliverer. They were types of Jesus Christ in various ways. But that's all they were. For none of those can deliver us from our sins. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the great Deliverer, who delivers his people from their sins, from the power of the devil, from all their enemies, provides for them, protects them. Boaz was a type who pointed forward to the true provider, protector, deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, some thoughts and conclusion. We noted previously that almost all of the people in the book of Ruth display God's grace at a time of great evil and destruction in their land, the time of the judges. Bethlehem at that time appears to have been an island of grace in a sea of evil, a community where astonishingly love for God and for one's neighbor appeared to have been more or less the norm. Ruth's deep dedication to Naomi. Boaz's amazing care for Ruth in the field and his greater care for her yet to come in the story. Lesser things like Boaz's attitude to the reapers and the reapers' attitude to him as their master. All these things described in Ruth are wonderful and display God's grace. In but those things didn't just happen in Bethlehem. In that time of great evil, Bethlehem was the community that it was because of one thing. The sovereign grace of God at work there. The people of Bethlehem weren't any better by nature than any other human beings. They're born in sin like everyone else, but their hearts were changed by grace. And by that grace they lived, loving God and loving their neighbors. What about the state of the United States in 2021? Anger, scorn, boasting, lying, many other evils characterise our verbal discourse. It is said repeatedly that we are a deeply divided nation. And that I think is true. It seems like the only thing that we can agree about is that we are a deeply divided nation. Divided politically, socially, religiously and a host of other ways. The divisions in our nation are great, perhaps never greater. We might think, well, wouldn't it be great if people in our country, like the people in Bethlehem, would just love God and their neighbors? That would solve our problems. That would indeed be great. But people don't naturally love God or their neighbors in their hearts. That's the problem. The reality is that all human beings by nature are sunk in spiritual darkness and sin. Horrible things are done daily in the United States. Things no better and probably worse than the horrible things described in the last few chapters of the book of Judges. We cry out to God, don't we, about great evils in our country, such as abortion, physical violence multiple forms of sexual deviance, greed, much more. Much as we would like to see these things end, such evils will not stop until human hearts are changed. And it is the ministry of the gospel of grace and the gospel alone that truly changes hearts and lives. Only when they hear and understand and heed the gospel will people humbly seek God's forgiveness of their sins. Their lives will change only when they understand from the gospel that their sins are an offense to God, but that they can be forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for sinners, such as them. Only then will the people of our nation want to love God and their neighbor. The key thing here is the life-changing power of the gospel. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to Titus here about how the gospel changed his life and Titus' life so that they stopped doing evil things to their neighbors, instead loved their neighbors. This is Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Paul says this, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the promise, promised hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to them. Notice in the last verse that I read how Paul urges that believers with new hearts give themselves to loving their neighbors and doing good to them. Paul can urge believers to do these so-called good works because he knows that they have changed hearts that want to serve God and love their neighbors, as Boaz did for Ruth long before. The gospel changes hearts. And changed hearts lead to changed lives. May we believe, do we believe in the power of the gospel to change hearts and ultimately change lives? Do we believe that? We should. May God work more and more of his grace in our hearts, enabling us to love him and and love our neighbors. Let's bow in prayer. Lord you are great and holy but kind and merciful and generous also we see your sovereign work here in this account of this, this account of what happened in Bethlehem 3000 years ago Lord you have your great plan you are working out for salvation of countless millions of people and Lord We want, as your people, redeemed by you. We want to live for your glory and do what is right and love you and love our neighbor. Also, Lord, make us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to recognize that it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, may we be your servants who, who do not fear to be identified as your servants, but rather serve you and speak the gospel as you give us opportunity. Hear our prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.